Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 19. It's Halloween, so switch off the lights, settle down by the fire and grab a stiff drink as Paul and I discuss a classic Conan Doyle ghost story, The Silver Mirror, from August 1908. And here's Paul to introduce the story. An accountant working on the case of White and Wotherspoons is on the trail of an outwardly respectable fraudster. He has 20 ledgers in which to follow and prove a trail of false bookkeeping. His available time is limited, entailing long hours of concentrated work and the attendant fatigue and brain fog. By his side as he works sits a large antique silver mirror in which he expects to see only his own tired reflection. But strangely, the harder he works and the closer he gets to his quarry, the mirror begins to mist and cloud internally, and a picture of a past tragedy begins to emerge from within. Now, we know very little about the writing of The Silver Mirror, other than that uh, Conan Doyle was working on it in early 1908. Now, at this time, Conan Doyle had remarried. He'd married uh, Jean Leckie in September 1907, and they'd moved into the new family home, Windlesham in Crowborough in East Sussex. And there, Conan Doyle pursued a, a wide variety of writing projects. One of the earliest was probably A Pot of Caviar, a treatise against uh, defeatism, which appeared in The Strand in March 1908. But he also drafted a new additional chapter for his 1899 work, A Duet. He also wrote a couple of plays, The Fires of Fate and The House of Templey, which we've mentioned in previous podcasts. And it was also around this time that he agreed to write the occasional reminiscence of Sherlock Holmes for The Strand as a way of maintaining his uh, somewhat volatile uh, finances. And they might have been particularly volatile around this period because uh, Conan Doyle was involved with a company that had uh, finally folded. It was the somewhat ridiculous automatic sculpture syndicate, which had the uh, British rights to a machine that would uh, duplicate marble sculptures. It would sort of trace the, the, the surface of one marble sculpture while carving another. It was a kind of early 3D printer and Conan Doyle had been involved with propping up the uh, lead sculptor, W.G. Jones, for about five years. And there's a rather marvellous diagram from the newspapers of a man who looks not dissimilar to Conan Doyle, sat astride this somewhat ridiculous machine, uh, which itself looks quite Heath Robinson. So he, he was struggling a little with his finances, and he picked up some of this additional story writing. And uh, one of the stories he wrote was The Silver Mirror, which appears to have been conceived as the first of a series of short historical sketches. And in this, Conan Doyle seems to have drawn inspiration from uh, a book by Rudyard Kipling, Puck of Pook's Hill, from 1906, which is a a collection of allegorical historical tales 
introduced by a creature claiming to be Puck from A Midsummer Night's Dream, who appears before two children. And uh, the stories are very interesting, uh, moral, magic, realist tales for, for young readers. And on the 23rd of February, 1908, Conan Doyle wrote to Robertson Nickel of uh, The Bookman uh, and spoke of this new series he had in mind and said, the idea is to stick very closely to the truth of history and only to introduce that absolute minimum of fiction which enables you to get colour and human comment into your picture. He might also have taken some inspiration from Sir Walter Scott's uh, Tales of a Grandfather, which we'll, we'll come back to later. And The Silver Mirror first appeared in The Strand in August 1908, and it was then collected in The Last Galley in 1911, which is a, a very peculiar mixture of, of stories in that it contains many of those short historical pieces, largely written between 1909 and 1911. But The Last Galley also includes a few random pieces from the early 1890s, and The Marriage of the Brigadier, and A Captain Sharky Tale. So it's a very odd collection. But in 1922, the stories were collected again, perhaps more sympathetically, certainly more coherently, as uh, Tales of Long Ago. And that volume collects all of the short historical pieces and makes for a much more uh, robust anthology. So The Silver Mirror is a historical short story, but it's also a ghost story. But where does it fit within the sort of bibliography of, of ghost stories around this time, Paul? It's an interesting entry uh, into the whole um, genre at this, this time. The, the, the ghost story uh, towards the end of the, uh, the 19th century and the early 20th century was beginning to, 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 to change its form um, away from the, the, the more traditional sort of sheeted ghost uh, haunted house formula of, of, of the ghost just being uh, a disembodied spirit that, that actually inhabits a certain place or, or, or locale. Um, Doyle had tried a couple of these when he was, he was younger, but, but not enormously successfully um, uh, with, with um, things like the, the Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, his, his first story uh, submitted for publication. Um, but it, it, essentially at this time, uh, you still have plenty of examples of that traditional ghost story, but you're also beginning to see the development of, of, of what, what, what could be termed the, the psychic ghost story, mm. where with this, this interest uh, uh, at this time, that, which again, Doyle was also involved in, in, in psychic research and spiritualism, uh, this was being reflected in in the literature as well, and and you you have a peculiar phenomenon um, at this time as well of the of the, uh, the psychic detective. Um, mm. <laughs> so uh, William Hope Hodgson's Karnaki, the Ghost Finder, uh, and Ian H Heron's Flaxman Low was another ghost investigator, mm. um, and and also perhaps most famously and successfully Algernon Blackwood's John Silence. Yeah. Um, the, the first volume of which was actually published in 1908, the same year as, as The Silver Mirror. Um, so you, you've got this, this psychic ghost story. Um, and in a way, the, the origins of that can be seen going back to the haunted house story uh, as well, because uh, 1859, Edward Bulwer-Lytton wrote uh, the, the, the Haunters and the Haunted, uh, also known as The House and the Brain, which was a real mix of, of, of early psychic occultism with the haunted house. And Conan Doyle himself loved that story and, and called it the very best ghost story that I know. Mm, mm. But alongside this development, you've also got the, the psychological ghost story, the most 
some of the most sophisticated of, of, of ghost story. Um, and the best examples of that are perhaps um, the, the Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which is uh, a study of a, a descent into madness of, 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 of an oppressed woman. Um, that was published in 1892. And probably most famously, The Turn of the Screw by Henry yeah, James, uh, published in 1898. Um, but also to, together with that, you've got M.R. James, yeah. Again, taking the traditional ghost story, but moving it in a far more sophisticated direction. Um, and you know, he, he's probably the, the, the one people most think of uh, and associate with the ghost story at this time. Um, but as well as telling you know, damn good ghost stories, he, he's also really concerned with the omnipresence and prevalence of the, of the past and the intrusion yes. of the past into the present. That really is a backbone of... of, of most of his stories and what you've got with the silver mirror as we'll find out as we investigate the story conan doyle takes elements of all three of those the, the traditional ghost story the psychic ghost story and the psychological ghost story and puts them into in and blends them all together and you mentioned there about the connection to psychic research and there is an element to which the sort of paraphernalia of psychic research starts to play into the silver mirror, with the silver mirror itself being almost a recording device. It's something that has witnessed a traumatic event in history and, and recorded it, and it can then be played back to a receptive individual. Um, and there'd long been that association of places and hauntings going back to, well, m- well before the 19th century. But in the 19th century, there were people like Edmund Gurney and Eleanor Sidgwick who proposed the idea of place memory, the idea that apparitions are fundamentally connected to locations and Conan Doyle played with that in in another of these short historical tales through the veil in 1911 but that that whole idea of place memory uh, was built on in the 20th century with the idea of the stone tape uh, the idea that buildings themselves are recording medium and um, that was popularized by uh, Nigel Neal in his uh, 1972 TV play of the same name which is uh, which is really excellent and then you also get other psychic research paraphernalia, the idea of um, uh, sort of haunted objects. And again, Conan Doyle had played with that previously in The Leather Funnel in 1902. And as much as these ideas might seem quite uh, ludicrous to us, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that this is the era of the emergence of the recording device, um, the era of the phonograph, which was invented by Edison in 1877 and trademarked as the gramophone 10 years later. Um, And that whole idea that you could capture sound and play it back later or take it to another place and play it there was just more evidence that things that were previously conceived as being impossible could now become real. And Conan Doyle again plays on this idea of the recording devices in other stories like uh, The Voice of Science in 1891, The Japanned Box in 1899, and The Adventure of the Mazaran Stone even in 1921, these ideas that actually the phonograph becomes a a key part of these uh, mysteries and, and these short stories. Yeah, and and uh, later in the uh, in the in the twentieth century, through as these ideas develop, um, a, a famous um, researcher T. C. Lethbridge, who was a um, Cambridge-educated uh, archaeologist and psychic researcher, he he followed the idea that that ghosts themselves are a kind of psychic tape recording um, that, that 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 could be seen by by the receptive. Uh, I mean, in, in his words, he, he said, they are pictures produced by human minds. They are not spirits of departed persons from another world. 
that some of them are produced by persons living on another plane of existence seems reasonable enough. But it also seems clear that the vast majority of ghosts must be produced by minds which are still using human bodies on this plane where we are now living. To me, they appear to be no more and no less than television pictures, which is, is a, <laughs> a very pertinent quote when we're talking about the, uh, the Silver Mirror and, and, and what Conan Doyle may have been thinking about ghosts at the time he wrote it. Hmm. And and there's even that fantastic image from Arthur Twidle that accompanies his story in the Strand, where it, it, you have the, the the accountant sat before the silver mirror, but to modern to modern eyes, it looks like a man watching television. It's got a, a lovely plasma screen there. <laughs> yes, and then you get the uh, very specific association of mirrors themselves as part of um, the paraphernalia of psychic research, but also uh, within um, with featuring within ghost stories, and unsurprisingly, mirrors. I've got a long history in, in literature and cultural representations. You know, haunted mirrors probably have their origin in the story of Narcissus, who obviously fell in love with his own reflection and died of thirst, not wanting to disturb his own image. But then you get mirrors as the reflections of the soul, because obviously once you stand in front of the mirror, then you have no one else to fool uh, but yourself. You know, So the idea that mirrors will reveal a deeper hidden truth and lots of superstitions are one said to be of the of the Romans themselves that uh, mirrors would reflect the human soul and should therefore not be uh, misused. And that's possibly an origin for the, the idea that uh, breaking a mirror is bad luck. And you obviously get that in vampire fiction as well, the idea that vampires can't be seen in mirrors because they have no soul. And then there's the idea of the mirror as witness, which is something that we get very much within the silver mirror. And uh, there's a great example of that within Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1886, in which uh, the characters are exploring the laboratory and they find uh, this uh, peculiar cheval glass into whose depth they looked with an involuntary horror. And Poole says, this glass has seen some strange things, sir. And then there's mirrors as gateways to an alternative reality, perhaps most famously from uh, Tennyson's The Lady of Shalott, 1842. Um, and... Uh, it's from that that we get the phrase, the mirror cracked from side to side, which is more closely associated now with Agatha Christie. Uh, and then also the idea of mirrors as, as communication devices, particularly within psychic research, scrying mirrors as a means of uh, getting guidance or revelation or prophecy. So mirrors are very powerful symbols in, in a whole range of um, cultural representations and in, in literature more broadly. Yeah, I mean, you've got the, the historical examples of, of this, and perhaps the, the, the most famous, uh, certainly English example, is, is, is that of the, the Elizabethan um, scientist and occultist, Dr. John Dee, mm. who had a number of, of, of what he called showstones, uh, which supposedly allowed him to, uh, to communicate with, with, with angels. Um, but as, as well as the, um, the, the, the showstones, he... he He's supposed to have uh, been bequeathed a strange mirror um, from Sir William Pickering, uh, who was the English ambassador to Charles V Court at Brussels. So th there was a great interest in these at, at, at court level um, mm. in the Elizabethan era as well. And, and, and mirrors and, and glass, again, they're, they're symbols of power um, also in terms of, of, of cost. Um, this is a time when glass is a hugely expensive material, a very valuable material. And the fact that it had this, this almost you know, magical quality of, of, of reflection and being able to see through it, it it's all these things come together mm. um, and, and mix into this, 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 this magical blend 
um, and it's, it's so associated with the with the occultism of, of this era. Um, and, and to come back to, to literature, there, there is um, a story um, by uh, Sir Walter Scott, My Aunt Margaret's Mirror, which features a, a, an Italian occultist from Padua, uh, Battista Damiotti, who lives in Edinburgh. And he has a magic mirror that, that you know, the, the, the ladies of the town usually consult him. And it, it, this is, a, it's, it's not a recording device. It, it's the other sort. It's the divination, mirror for divination. Which is again what's what what D use the, these things for more. So you've you've got that element going on as well. Mm. Yeah, this story also reminded me a bit of the Face in the Glass by Mary Elizabeth Braddon, which is um, a ghost story set near York, where we're based. Um, but uh, Braddon's probably best known for being the author of Lady Audley's Secret, which is the sensation novel of all sensation novels from the eighteen sixties, and is you know, a fantastic array of um, murders and, and would-be murders and uh, various other sensations. It's a, it's a very, it's, it's a great fun read, that one. Um, it's also a possible source of inspiration for, for Conan Doyle's um, A Physiologist's Wife, which uh, uh, has uh, accidental bigamy as central to the plot, but actually the story, um, the Conan Doyle story, almost feels like a reverse of the setup of Lady Audley's secret, but in um, the face in the glass, newlyweds uh, Hugh and Ruth Monroe uh, get bored and decide that they're going to do a ghost hunt around their new house and find within one room uh, a mirror which will show the face of the next member of the family to die. And Hugh is horrified to see it's a, it's the face of his wife. Um, yes, yeah, so the the. the- Mirror as as for all for used for divination, but again in this case it's accidental divination. Yeah. Whereas in, in Scott's story, it is it, it's it's a very deliberate. You know, it, it isn't clear whether the the mirror in Scott's story you know, tells the future or just shows the past and the present. You, you, it's it's not made clear. Um, it, it is interesting as well thinking about that story that that, that Tennyson who you've you've just mentioned with the, the mirror. Um, that he regarded uh, my aunt Margaret's mirror um, as the finest of all ghosts or magical stories, um, a view which wasn't shared by Scott's publisher, who, who thought it was a bit of uh, a bit of nonsense and, and <laughs> didn't actually want to, to publish it. Um, so it, it was actually it appeared later than than Scott wanted it to for for, mm. for that reason. Interesting. So the silver mirror is a ghost story. It's also a uh, historical sketch, as we'll come on to in a bit. But you can also read um, The Silver Mirror as a spiritualist text. And Conan Doyle's key message there is that if you're receptive to uh, these things that are on the fringes of scientific um, understanding, you may uh, be rewarded with a a humbling, if not transcendental experience, uh, as happens to the, the main character in The Silver Mirror. And Conan Doyle is very careful in how he configures this story so that he can get this message across most effectively. And it's no accident that the, the main character is uh, an accountant who's conducting an audit. It's all uh, very important that that main figure is a very grounded, uh, sensible, uh, real-world individual who's very reasonable and very level-headed. And when the accountant starts to see things appear in the mirror, he at first thinks you know, he might just be tired, it might just be overwork, he's possibly delirious. But as that's, as the story progresses, that idea is dismissed and it's instead replaced by his critical curiosity about what is actually um, happening in the mirror and the scene that is 
is being uh, replayed. When the narrator first encounters something peculiar, he sees this swirling grey mist appear in, in, in the mirror. And he says, uh, so real and solid was it, and so reasonable was I, that I remember turning with the idea that the curtains were on fire. But everything was deadly still in the room, no sound save the ticking of the clock, no movement save the slow gyration of that strange woolly cloud deep in the heart of the old mirror. And uh, during this visitation, the accountant has enough sense that he can actually debate with himself about what he's seeing. So he says, uh, you know, a skeptic would say, no doubt, that I had dropped asleep over my figures and that my experience was a dream. As a matter of fact, I was never more vividly awake in my life. I was able to argue about it even as I looked at it and to tell myself that it was a subjective impression, a chimera of the nerves begotten by worry and insomnia. And as the experiences go on, they become more physical and more real than almost anything else the accountant is experiencing. He says, the stage of mistiness and development must have passed unobserved. And there she was in all her beauty and passion and distress, as clear cut as if she were really in the flesh before me. So not only are the experiences becoming more vivid and more profound, there's less preamble. He doesn't even notice the the mists appearing. And as this progresses, the narrator starts to wonder that critical question, why me? Why is it that I'm able to see this? And he actually asked this of a of a doctor friend at the end. But why to me, I asked in bewilderment, why of all the human race to me? Because you were in the fit mental state to receive the impression, because you chanced to own the mirror, which gave the impression. And that's Conan Doyle's key message at the end, which is that by approaching phenomena with an open but critical mind, you're able to experience all these amazing uh, experiences. And in this way, it sort of reflects Conan Doyle's frustration with scientific orthodoxy and its uh, inability or refusal to uh, consider all the things that are on the fringes of of uh, acceptable science. It was something that he was particularly uh, irritated by. And the whole idea of this as a spiritual t- spiritualist text was really explored uh, quite nicely at the Conan Doyle uh, and Edinburgh conference last year by uh, Kyle Dedecker, who gave a paper on Conan Doyle's attitudes to spiritualism in two stories, in De Profundis from 1892 and uh, to The Silver Mirror in 1908, where you can see uh, quite a marked shift in in attitudes. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the the joys of this story is it it it's not one of Conan Doyle's propagandist stories for spiritualism. Mm. It, it can be read at many levels, as, as we've already discussed. It it is a great, straightforward ghost story um, with with yeah you know, the the messages in there. If you want to read it in there, and and the, this idea that that anybody uh, it can be a medium or you know, even mm. even this this very uh, outwardly dull <laughs> middle-class man um, because mediums are usually associated as, as you know excitable females and certainly in the in the kind of the stereotype um but it, it's all done in a, in a far more subtle way um than 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 say as we were later going to get in in the land of mist mm. and probably the most obvious way in which this is a spiritualist text is that at no point does the narrator feel any fear or any anxiety about this haunting he might feel a little bit of confusion at the beginning as he's trying to understand what's going on but actually this is not a ghost story in which there is a malevolent ghost or there is anything there to terrify people. This is a replay of previous historical events. So let's move on to looking at this story as a uh, historical sketch. And the centerpiece of the story are the events that took place, the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh, 
in the 1560s. And Conan Doyle had a personal connection to Holyrood House, as, as we shall see. So Holyrood House is the Queen's official residence in Scotland, and it stands at the foot of the Royal Mile, uh, the road that leads up towards Edinburgh Castle. And it had its origins as an Augustinian abbey in the 12th century, when David I had a vision of a stag with a cross or a rood uh, between its antlers, hence the Holy Rood. And in the 15th century, the abbey became home to the kings of Scotland when Edinburgh became the capital. Um, and they preferred the abbey with its hunting grounds and gardens to uh, the rather more austere surroundings of Edinburgh Castle itself. And in the time of James V, the father of Mary, Queen of Scots, the palace was uh, expanded um, and a west tower was built, the second floor of which became the rooms of, uh, of Mary, Queen of Scots. And a century later, uh, the whole palace was greatly expanded by Charles II, a glorious new um, reception uh, area and state rooms were put in with some plaster ceilings. And it's quite a marvellous building if you, if you go and see it. Conan Doyle was born in Picardy Place, which is also the east side of Edinburgh. Uh, this is uh, sort of more northeast of the, the centre. And it's only about 20 minutes walk from Holyrood House. Uh, and he certainly would have been very familiar with the palace, even if he hadn't got this personal connection, which was that his father had been involved in the design of a fountain that uh, uh, is located in the forecourt of, of the palace. So at the age of 17, Charles Altamont Doyle was sent to Edinburgh to take up uh, a post as assistant to the chief architect in the Edinburgh Office of Works. And it's in the records of the Edinburgh Office of Works that we find that uh, Charles Doyle was listed as uh, one of the draftsmen on this uh, this fountain, which was probably um, designed by the senior architect, Andrew Kerr, who himself worked under Robert Matheson. Uh, Andrew Kerr is a name that actually will <laughs> reappear in a different context in, in the historical story. There's nothing on the fountain itself to indicate anything, any connection to, to Charles Doyle's. There's nothing there that reflects his particular interest, but we've got some photographs of it and we'll put those into the into the show notes. And there's also this peculiar um, side note that uh, Conan Doyle's father apparently owned several pieces of furniture from Hollywood House, uh, although where that uh, information has come from, we're not we're not clear. Uh, yes, this, this information is is used by Andrew Lysett in his biography of, of Doyle, but th there's no clear source for it. But it would be interesting to know if 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 young Doyle, young young Arthur, that is, knew that that, that he was growing up with with these you know, artifacts from with their, with their connections to to Scottish royal history. There's a, a comment made by the uh, the, the well-known um, anthologist uh, Peter Haining uh, when he he put the Silver Mirror in one of his uh, anthologies, The Nightmare Reader. Uh, and he claims that the silver mirror draws on a small but uncanny incident from his early life, which never left his memory. Again, it's unsourced. Um, so we don't know whether you know, Hennings just, just made that up or, or it would be interesting to, to know if, if, uh, if it's genuinely sourced, where that information comes from and what the incident was. Was it connected to furniture from Holyrood? Uh, mm. Who knows? And perhaps one of those uh, items of furniture was indeed a silver mirror or something, something equivalent. Now, the events that the... Uh, mirror replays for the narrator are ones that uh, anybody in Edinburgh at the time would have been uh, very familiar with since it's a central moment in uh, the history of Scotland. 
yes, the incident depicted is the well-known uh, murder of, of David Rizzio, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, Italian secretary. Um, now, Rizzio is, is uh, because this story has been surrounded by so much propaganda over, over the centuries, it, it's difficult to try and work out anything like the truth. But it does appear that, that, that um, David Rizzio, we do know, was um, Piedmontese or Savoyard, um, was, was well-educated. Um, we don't know exactly where he, he was schooled, but it may have been the University of Padua, uh, which is, is quite interesting in that, that Padua had a, a, a great reputation. Um, and Scott, in his story, My Aunt Margaret's Mirror, his, his doctor or occultist, actually comes from Padua. So, <laughs> you know, the, this, this kind of linking thing there. But uh, yeah, uh, Rizzio um, worked up through the Piedmontese court um, and he arrived in Edinburgh in December 1561 as part of the retinue of Roberto Solato, who was the, the Marquis de Moretto. And uh, he, he was he was a minor player at that point, and um, but he was he was known, he was very musical as well as, as a very intelligent individual. Um, and at this time, the um, the Chapel Royal Choir um, had been reinstigated at, at Edinburgh, and he had a, apparently had a beautiful bass voice, uh, and was recruited into the choir um, for, for that reason. Um, and from there, he, he seems to have caught the eye of, of, of Queen Mary, um, and become rather rather a favourite uh, over, over the, the next few months. Um, progressing from being a, a, a singer in the choir to being a, you're an advisor to the Queen mm. um, and, and ending up as her private secretary. And it's interesting that Rizzio was Piedmontese because they were the arch rivals of um, the Calvinists in Geneva and the tensions between Protestant and Catholic are the real backdrop to the murder of David Rizzio. Um, when Mary Queen of Scots came uh, across to Scotland in 1561, to take possession of the crown. Scotland had for many years been a Catholic nation, but had undergone the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant nobles uh, were very concerned that Mary's return would lead to a resurgence of Catholicism. So obviously when David Rizzio rose to the ranks of private secretary and had so much control over access to Mary, that, that caused a great deal of consternation among the among the Protestant nobles in Scotland. But there was a, another context to this as well, which was the rivalry with England. So in 1565, the cat is put among the pigeons, as it were, when Mary marries uh, Henry Lord Darnley. Henry Darnley was the son of a Protestant nobleman, Lennox, um, but had himself been raised a Catholic. And uh, in many ways, this seemed to be the ideal match. Uh, but Darnley was a weak figure, he was uh, easily influenced and also arguably very violent and also fiercely jealous. And one of the people he was fiercely jealous of was David Rizzio. There were many rumours, um, most likely put about by the Protestant nobleman, that actually Rizzio was the father of uh, Mary's child. And by the time of Rizzio's murder in March 1566, uh, Mary was six months pregnant with a son, uh, the future James the Sixth of Scotland and James the First of England. Yeah, yes, Darnley is kind of he's the central figure in all of this uh, because of his weak character. Um, he was easy to manipulate, um, mm. and and a whispering campaign started, as you've just pointed out, Mark. Mary had been 
made pregnant by Rizzio rather than Darnley. Um, and there's, there's stories of, of at one point Darnley knocking, being denied access to Mary's bedroom, knocking on the door, mm. uh, and the door being opened by a sheepish David Rizzio in his shirt sleeves. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's all these rumours start to, to, to fly about and stories. And, and, and Darnley, um, you know, this this is the the, the 16th century. You, you you look at Shakespeare and and uh, the idea of the cuckold is this, this hugely humiliating mm. figure. And and Darnley, being the character he is, doesn't take this very well at all. And is easy to manipulate uh, into a campaign against Rizzio, who, who is now being seen by a number of the the, the, the Protestant lords as a very dangerous figure indeed, um, and and needs to be removed. Um, uh, and in the end, there's, there's, there's a group of these lords uh, led by um, Lord Riven uh, who, who group together and actually make a, a contract um, mm. a, about, you know, the Rizzio must be done away with and done away with permanently. And Darnley is, is brought into this circle. Um, and so on the night of, of March the 9th, 1566, there is an invasion of, of, of Holyrood and Rizzio is slaughtered in, in, in front of her. And it is one of the most dramatic moments in Scottish history. There's a very famous depiction of this by John Opie, uh, the murder of Rizzio from 1787, which shows Rizzio on the floor being dragged away and uh, the Queen reaching out. Um, and there's Riven in his uh, in his suit of armour, holding her back. And it's a, a great dramatic sequence. And in fact, um, there's another one as well, uh, the murder of David Rizzio by Sir William Allen, from 1833, and that was um, uh, on display in the National Galleries in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Conan may well have seen this in, in the public collections uh, growing up. And actually, the, the, the depiction he has of the inside of Mary's chambers and this scene being played out um, could almost be borrowed by Arthur Twidle for the frontispiece illustration for the, for the Strand in August 1908. It's so, so very similar. But you have this incredibly dramatic moment which plays out. It's very brutal that, you know, at one point Mary is having this private dinner. She's pulled to one side by one of Riven's men, which uh, who was Andrew Kerr. There's that name again, who supposedly held a, a gun to her belly. Remember, she's six months pregnant at this time, uh, while Rizzio is dragged from the room and stabbed 56 times. And if you go to Holyrood House now, um, into that you can walk through the first floor chamber, which was Darnley's bedroom, up the secret um, spiral staircase at the end of the room that takes you directly into Mary's chambers and then through the door into the room in which at the top of the staircase uh, Rizzio was supposedly put to death. And there is a, a, a nice plaque on the wall that indicates this is where the body was, was found and a pool of very convenient red blood that still stains the floorboards to this day, but looks uh, remarkably like Ribena um, and is presumably regularly topped up for the visitors. Um, but it is a really horrific moment um, and had enormous consequences, really, when you think about the, 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 what this means for Scottish history and that, you know, Mary's relationship with Darnley was never the same again. She then conspired in the murder of Darnley later, and it was on the back of that that she was forced to abdicate um, which ultimately led to her her downfall. Um, so it's a, it's you know in many ways this um, this murder of this uh, Piedmontese uh, member of the uh, ambassadorial party has a colossal downstream effect 
Yes, I mean, you've got in the background the, the figure on the night of Rizzio's murder. The, the, the were, Rizzio wasn't the only one on the hit list. Uh, he was the one who, who they got, but they were also after the Earl of Bothwell, who, yeah. who managed to escape, and he's you know, Mary's future lover and husband. Um, and he's, he's the classic adventurer type, and he's behind a, a, a lot of the trouble later on in, in, in her reign. Um, so this night is, is, is a real culmination of, of, of things of this way. It is a, it is a turning point of history. It's, it's a very, very dramatic moment. It's a bloody moment. And it's, it's one of those, certainly as regards um, Scottish and British history, it, it's, it's one of the punctuation marks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, um, Sir Walter Scott wrote his own account in a series of works called Tales of a Grandfather, which he wrote for his, his grandson unsurprisingly, um, between 1828 and 1830. And we know Conan Doyle was heavily influenced by Scott. One of the earliest books that Conan Doyle received was a copy of Readings for the Young from the works of Sir Walter Scott, which he received as a school prize for doing well. Um, And his copy survives to this day. And there are some vignettes by Scott on the life of Mary in Readings for the Young, although they're about um, Mary's abdication at Lochleven Castle. Whereas his version of the murder of Rizzio appears in, in Tales of a Grandfather. And in Scott's telling, it's Darnley's jealousy of Rizzio that leads him to organise this murder. So he actually places Darnley as being the, the key organising figure when uh, we, we're pretty sure now that actually Darnley is being played uh, in this uh, perhaps um, rather more willingly than he would uh, want people to know. And Scott ends his dramatisation of this moment with... Uh, the sentence, the witnesses, the actors, and the scene of this cruel tragedy render it one of the most extraordinary which history records, which is probably about the the best possible epitaph for this um, historical event. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as, as we say, absolutely central with, with the kind of uh, mythologization process um, mm. as well. You know, the, the, the story is obviously reads differently to different people. So yeah, to, from a, the, the strong uh, Protestant viewpoint, you know, Rizzio almost got what was coming to him um, from the Catholic viewpoint. So here's this 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 you know uh, innocent man who's just just helping Queen Mary out a bit, um, uh, and and he's 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 murdered for for little reason. Um, so that the whole thing becomes covered in this 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 layer of of, of, of myth and it'd be mm. interesting i mean in in owen dudley edwards book uh, the quest for sherlock holmes he talks about or, or, or speculates on was was young arthur shown around holyrood by his father uh when his father was working there and 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 did he get the story was what did his father give him the story and and it'd yeah. be interesting to know uh how that played out because his father was a very, very strong Catholic and it, it's, it's obvious which side he would be on. Um, so where, where young Arthur's probably getting this story from a number of different sources um, and, and different viewpoints, you know, from, from, from his father, from, from reading Scott and uh, is, is probably working out in his own mind what, what, he, what he makes of this, this, this story and is obviously drawn to the sheer drama yes. of the whole thing. Yes, and Conan Doyle doesn't make a historical judgment on this event, does he? He doesn't really come down on one on a Protestant no, view in, or a Catholic view. The Silver Mirror, it, it's it's simply a reportage. Um, you, you you get a very graphic 
portrayal of the murder with with the, with Rizzio's blood it, it, it didn't pour it squirted I think it's something like those, <laughs> those lines so it, it's it's Doyle enjoying himself regaling the, yeah. this sort of story um, but he's taking no political or religious viewpoint yeah yeah it's worth actually mentioning that we um, we both read in advance of this um, David Tweedy's book David Rizzio and Mary Queen of Scots Mur- Murder at Holyrood which came out in 2014 which is um, probably the most comprehensive modern work on the murder. It definitely has its own bias, um, but it's a it's a it's a, a really interesting work, and it has I think it does quite a good job of showing how far the um, Protestant lords were supported um, by um, uh, Sir William Cecil, Elizabeth's Elizabeth the First Chief Minister, who was obviously watching events in Scotland unfold very, very closely indeed, since both Mary and Darnley both had uh, um, claim on the throne of England through their grandmothers, I think it was. <laughs> and on the and on the topic of the squirting blood as well, you also get um, uh, Conan Doyle playing up the Gothic a little in, in this. Not that you need a huge amount to play up the Gothic in this story, um, but his depiction of Riven is, is, is interesting and it's consistent with the historical narrative in that he's a spectral figure. He's one of the prominent uh, Protestant lords who supposedly actually led a party of, what, 300, 400 men to Holyrood House, and he um, is lean, cadaverous, pale. Um, he'd literally risen from his deathbed, uh, according to some, in that he was suffering from cancer, and I think he died about three months later. But it's interesting that it's Riven, because that's the name of the title character in Polidori's The Vampire. Um, and I'm not sure if there's any... Um, direct connection back to it, but it's interesting that Riven comes across as a as a vampiric figure in both the um, contemporary narratives and also in in Conan Doyle's depiction, although he appears very very briefly. Mm, it, it, it enters European culture in the in the nineteenth century through Polidori's story, mm. um, and and he'd been predated by um, Lord Byron's former lover, uh, Lady Caroline Lamb, mm. who'd used a character called Riven, who was um, the, a, a, a bit of a wrong one. Um, <laughs> and then this 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 name is used again by by John Polidori, and it's used in various vampire plays in in Europe that all, mm. all play on on Polidori's story. Um, and it, it it is interesting. It's actually we don't know from any any written evidence uh, that Conan Doyle had read um, the Vampire. But it is interesting if you look at the um, the published uh, illustrated diary of his father, Charles Altamont Doyle, when, when Charles was was in uh, Montrose Royal Asylum, um, and on one of the pages of that, he actually draws um, a cross between a man and a parrot, essentially, and and puts Polidori. So he knows of the existence of of, of of this character. So you know, possibly young Arthur had read the Vampire, and, and the mm. name stuck. Uh, and it is interesting the very phrasing used in the Silver Mirror for the historical Riven. Mm. Uh, there is one terrible creature, a skeleton of a man with hollow cheeks and eyes sunk in his head. Yeah. Yes, it's also interesting when you when you look at the Silver Mirror to to, to take into account that essentially you've got two stories going on. Um, and you, you've got the accountant is is the, playing the detective here, and he's hunting down this respected alderman uh, who's been you know fiddling his expenses. Um, and then alongside this, you've got the, this this story of of of, of Rizzio and and his being hunted down 
mm. at, at the same time. So these these two different stories, but but both about um, about characters being hunted down to to get what might be seen as their just desserts, perhaps. Mm. Mm. Uh, and it, it's also interesting to to speculate upon the the, the point of, of of almost the accountant as detective here. Uh, you, you've almost got um, an, an element of, of um, Mycroft Holmes being brought in here, where, where, where Sherlock Holmes tells Watson, if the art of the detective began and ended in reasoning from an armchair, my brother would be the greatest criminal agent that ever lived. Um, and perhaps, you know, we've, we've got an element of this in the accountant. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to the end of uh, The Silver Mirror. So um, what do you make of this story, Paul? It's it's a particularly interesting story. It's 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 a shame it's not better known. Yeah, uh, really, um, because you, you you've got uh, an awful lot going on here. You've got, as as we've discussed, it's 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 a ghost story. It's a it's it's a kind of detective story as well. It's a historical story. You've got this this, this real mix, uh, and and it's also a a, a, a snapshot of uh, of Conan Doyle's thinking at this time using fiction to explore his his views towards um spiritualism and and the the, the role of history in the present um there's just an awful lot going on there yeah i really like this one and i like the fact that he's starting to play with um history in 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 a different kind of way here he's borrowing from his hero scott He's borrowing from these ideas of um, Kipling in in the Pook Hill book. And he's about to move into this period of his life where for two or three years he writes a series of very interesting short historical tales which are all allegorical. And while these are not, this is not an allegorical tale, um, you can feel he's uh, getting into training, as it were, for writing these um, historical vignettes. And, and they work really well. Conan Doyle... Has, it always has a great mastery of of detail, but he also has a great mastery of, of storytelling, and he's able to, in in this story in particular, I think it's he manages with um, great economy to get across a, a really pivotal moment in in history and to make it very vivid and, and lifelike. And it's very interesting as well that this this is one of the only stories where he's actually talking about an episode of of, of Scottish history. Yeah. So what have we got on the podcast uh, next time, Paul? Oh, very different next time. We're, we're, we're actually um, going off to participate in a criminal escapade in 1860s Japan with Jelen's Voyage. Excellent. Very unusual story and not very well known. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to find out more about the story, you can read the show notes at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you want to support the podcast, you can uh, become a patron at Patreon, and there'll be a link in the show notes as well. But until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. I like the fact that the, uh, the firm being investigated has Wotherspoons. Ha, 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 ha.